And then this weekend we begin a new kind of mini-series in this annual series that we're going through called Prepare the Way. We've been in a series called Kings and Kingdoms. We, we began to look at God's raising up of kings to lead his people. And this week we're going to start looking at the prophets who proclaimed what was to come. What God has been planning from the beginning. And the reason we look at it this way is because this is the way the Old Testament is structured. That we see the history of the kings and then we see what God proclaims through the prophets about who Jesus is and what he came to do. So this weekend we're going to begin in Isaiah chapter 6. If you want to turn there with me in your Bible. Now if you start in Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah writes for us that he was God's prophet during the time of four separate kings of Judah. There's a lot of parallel between the kings and the prophets. These time periods run parallel to one another. And Isaiah is the prophet during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, all kings of Judah. Now, the beginning of the chapter here in 6, I want to talk about kind of the context of what Isaiah is saying, the historical context of where we are in the history of God's people, because it's important for understanding what it is that Isaiah is about to encounter. If you read through the books of Kings and Chronicles, and we look at the parallel accounts of the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel, often what the writer will reveal to us is that each king either was good in the eyes of the Lord or did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Most of them did evil. But occasionally you'll run across one or two who were actually somewhat decent kings. It says that they did good in the eyes of the Lord. Uzziah was one of these kings who is listed as those who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The, the record is that he was a somewhat decent king. Now, we know that if you read his story in 2 Kings 15 and 2 Chronicles 26, that at the end of his life, he did make sort of a big mistake. He lets his pride get the better of him, and he actually spends his final days afflicted by God of leprosy, and he is cut off from his people. This is the end of Uzziah's reign. And this is where Isaiah finds himself in the temple. Verse 1 says, in the year that King Uzziah died. So this is the year that he has either completely died or he is dead to the kingdom because he has been separated from the people. But outside of the end of his life, he's described as a pretty decent king. And it says that he came to power as a teenager and he reigned over Judah for 52 years. That is a long time for a king terrain, especially during this period. And during that period, he did a lot for the people of God. He had some great military accomplishments, and he brought Judah to prosperity, and he ends up being a really good king. But you think for a moment about what it means for somebody to have power for 52 years. Somebody to be loved by the people as much as he was loved. In his power during his reign, you would have people born, live almost full lives, and die, having only ever known this king. Last September, Queen Elizabeth II died, and she had been on the throne in England for 70 years. Now say what you want about the British monarchy, but that is a long time 
for someone to be in power. When she came to the throne, Harry Truman was president of the United States. And she had seen 12 different U.S. presidents come and go. And you would have people who would be born, live a full life, and die having only had this person on the throne. And so many people loved her. And when she died, her nation entered into a time of mourning. And so this is where Judah finds itself in the year of Uzziah's death as Isaiah enters the temple. A nation in mourning. A nation wondering what was going to happen next. Who would be the next king? Or what would, be, what would this next king be like? So perhaps Isaiah enters the temple looking for consolation for himself or looking for consolation for his people. But there he meets not just a king, but the king. Look with me beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. It used to be that brides, when they would walk down the aisle, they would have these long gowns, right? Sometimes they would be so long that ushers would have to carry them because that gown symbolized that that person was the most important person in the room. It was a symbol of status. Isaiah tells us that this, this king that he sees sitting on the throne, his robe engulfs the entire temple. It shows his power and his dominion. And it says, Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty for the whole earth is filled with his glory. So Isaiah encounters not just a king who has this long robe that engulfs the whole temple, but he is surrounded by seraphim, by angels who are singing this same song over and over again. We get similar descriptions in Ezekiel chapter 1 and in John's vision in Revelation chapter 4. And we learn from Revelation that at all times, throughout eternity, these angels surround God and they sing the same song. And it's in their song that we get a significant description of who God is. Because in this temple, grieving the loss of an earthly king, Isaiah has a face-to-face -face encounter with the king who is holy, holy, holy. Those are the three most important words in the entire chapter. Holy, holy, holy. And without a right understanding of how the original language works, you might miss how important this really is since we don't speak like this today. We, we sort of do. Like, like if I ask you, do you like her or do you like like her, right? Those have different meanings in our minds. We, we know what that second meaning is. By just adding that word together, it, it emphasizes what I'm asking. It even changes the question a little bit. When the same way the Hebrew language would repeat a word in order to add emphasis. In his book, The Holiness of God, R.C. Sprawl gives what I think is a, a really funny example of this out of Genesis 14, where we're told that some men had fallen into some, some great tar pits, that's what my Bible says, but if you look at the original Hebrew language, it actually uses the word pit and then just repeats it for emphasis. And so Sprawl says, 
This literally is speaking of pit pits. He says there are pits and there are pits. Some pits are pittier than other pits. These pits, the pit pits, were the pittiest pits of all. It's one thing to fall into a pit, but if you fall into a pit pit, then you are in deep trouble. And I keep telling Parker he is dangerously close to taking showers every single day because of his pit pits, right? They're starting to stink. It changes the meaning. It changes the emphasis of what the author is talking about. And so if simply repeating a word emphasizes it, then what do you think it means to repeat it twice? To use that same word three times in a row. It means to elevate it to the superlative degree. Memphis Christian Church is a big church. But Northside Christian Church is a big, big church. It's bigger than Memphis Christian Church, but Southeast Christian Church, that's the biggest church in the land. That's the biggest church over all the churches. It's the big, big, big church. In other words, this king is not just holy. And not just holy, holy. Not just holier than Uzziah or some other earthly king. No, this king is the holiest of all. He stands out. He is set apart from everything else in all creation. We often equate holiness with goodness. Like if I say that person is holier than thou, it means I think that they think that they're better than everybody else. And so, so we equate holiness with being better, but the real definition means to be set apart. So it isn't simply that God is better than us or that he's in a different league. He's playing a different sport altogether. God is infinitely not us. That's what it means to be holy, holy, holy. Later, God would express it this way through Isaiah. For my thoughts, they're not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. Think how much higher the heavens are than the earth. We will always be challenged in our thinking of God if we cast onto him the ways that we think and the things that we would do to make God in our own likeness when it is God who has made us in his own likeness. He is not like us. Verse 4 tells us that in the presence of this holy, holy, holy king and the voice of the angels, that the very doorposts and thresholds of the temple shook. Think about that. If inanimate objects quake at the absolute holiness of God, then what do you think will happen to a sinful human being like Isaiah? Well, he tells us in the words out of his mouth. He says, woe is me. The prophet would go in and he would declare praises or blessings, or he would declare woes, which were curses. Isaiah is literally decrying a curse on himself when he says, woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. That word ruined is better translated as undone, unraveled, coming apart at the seams. Isaiah is quite literally disintegrating. Why? Because he isn't just encountering this king who is holy, holy, holy. Isaiah has a face-to-face -face encounter with his own sin. Look at what he says is the cause of his undoing. I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. 
It's interesting to me that instead of pointing out some, something that Isaiah has done, like that time he smacked his brother on the back of the head or looked at a, at a woman inappropriately or stole something, not that Isaiah did any of these things, but, but you get the point. Isaiah doesn't point to anything in particular that he has done. No, he points to his mouth as the reason for his unworthiness to stand before this king. And of course, Jesus tells us that it's out of the overflow of our hearts that our mouth speaks. James describes our tongue as a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. It sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. A few years ago, I shared the story of how I cut my finger cutting chicken. And it, really, it was my fault because Amanda told me to pull chicken out before I left for work, and I didn't do that. And so when I got home, I had to like slice into this half-frozen chicken. And the way that I used to do that is I would just hold the chicken in the palm of my hand, and I would take the knife, and I would slice it. Yeah, I know. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> because I, I sliced through my finger. And, and I had to go get three or four stitches. And the moral is, listen to your wife, and you won't have to get stitches. But the... But you know, I still have a scar from that. I, I still look at my finger and I have the reminder of that moment that I sliced my finger cutting chicken. But the scar doesn't hurt. It, it just, it's just there. It's just visible. But you know, there are things that were said to me in elementary school by other kids that are still open wounds for me. That, that still cause me pain today. Our mouths have the ability to destroy and, and if, I, if I wanted to, I could destroy people with my words. Isaiah points to his lips as the cause of his unworthiness because it's our lips that reveal the wickedness in our hearts. Gossip and slander, malice, lying and false flattery, ungratefulness and deception, all of it shows who we are on the inside. And Isaiah recognizes that as holy as he might have once considered him to be, his lips reveal the truth. But I think there's another reason for his unraveling. And that was that he could no longer hide behind comparisons. When you come up against that which is holy, 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 when you come up against that which is holiest, we lose the ability to think to ourselves, at least I'm better than this person. We've all done that. We, we've been that Pharisee. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like my, my neighbor. Thank you for keeping me from murdering somebody. Thank you for keeping me from stealing something significant or from cheating on my wife, right? We, we, we compare ourselves to other people and it makes us feel better about who we are. Compare ourselves to the sin of others. But every single one of us, regardless of what other sinners we compare ourselves to, when face to face with that which is holiest, we respond exactly the same way that Isaiah does, or we would respond in the same way. See, all of his sin is revealed to him at once in the presence of this king. And for him, it's truly unbearable as it would be for any of us. And it's a reminder that the only standard of comparison that matters is our sin against the holiest of holies. That's the only comparison that matters for us. Not, not me compared to somebody else, but me compared to God. And in fact, I would argue 
that the reason we sometimes have such a hard time understanding why God acts the way he does is because we have such a limited view of God's holiness and such a limited view of our own sin in light of that holiness. We underestimate both to our own detriment. Many of the questions that have come up this year through the F260 reading plan could be answered by simply saying, because God is holy and we are not. Why, why would God strike someone dead for reaching out to steady the ark because he didn't want it to fall on the ground? Because God is holy and he was not. Why would God harden Pharaoh's hearts in order to display his power to the people? Because God is holy and we are not. Why would God use the nation of Israel to annihilate every man, woman, and child in another nation? Because God is holy and we are not. Why would God send 42, spend two she-bears to maul 42 youths for disrespecting one of his prophets? Because God is holy and we are not. Not only can we not comprehend his ways, which are infinitely higher than ours, but we just don't see how much our own sin has separated us from this holy, holy, holy God. In order for us to understand why it is God behaves the way he does and why does he treat people the way that he does is important for us to wrap our minds around this, but we also must understand it in order to understand why Jesus was necessary to bridge the gap between us and God, we have to increase our view of God's holiness and our sin in light of that holiness. Isaiah came face to face with both of these realities at once and it almost destroyed him. Fortunately for us, God often reveals these things gradually. You know, I used to think that if I could just overcome this one sin in my life, that I would be all set in my relationship with God. But when he begins to root those things out and change our hearts from the inside, he reveals the next thing and the next thing and the next thing as he draws us deeper into relationship with himself. It's gradual and we thank God for that. Because if it weren't, then we might come undone as Isaiah does. But in his grace and mercy, God doesn't leave Isaiah to his unraveling and destruction. Look with me at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Notice where the angel took the hot coal. He took it from the altar. The altar where sacrifices were burned to make atonement for the sins of his people. You can break the word atonement down to mean at one mint. It's the mechanism that God gave his people to be able to live at one with him, bridging that gap of separation. And the moment that the angel touched the hot coal to the unclean lips, he touches it right in the place that Isaiah declares as the reason for his undoing. He's cleansed from all his unrighteousness. He's cleansed from all his sin. He is completely forgiven. This is what was accomplished on our behalf when Jesus went to the cross to make atonement for your sins and mine, to bring us at one with God. And the moment that a person believes in Jesus, recognizes their need for forgiveness, accepts that his sacrifice was sufficient to do that, our guilt is wiped away. An empty slate at the empty tomb 
Like Isaiah, it happens in an instant. Colossians 2, 13 through 14 says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. We stood in the courtroom, guilty as charged. Everything that we have ever done against this holy God sitting on our shoulders. And what Jesus did was he canceled it. He wiped it away in an instant. And so, yes, the rest of our lives are lived in growing in this understanding of what this means, of digging deeper into our knowledge of who God is and his holiness. As David prayed, falling in, God love, falling in love with God more today than we did yesterday. But we are justified in an instant. And in that instant, we become children of God. And that's the moment that our eternal lives start, not when we die, but the very moment we accept the sacrifice. If God had not done this for Isaiah, then I'm convinced that the next part would have utterly killed him. Because if even the sight of God and the voice of the angels began his unraveling, then hearing the voice of God would have completely annihilated him. Remember back to Exodus chapter 20? God comes down to Mount Sinai to give the law to the people to talk to the people and there was great thunder and lightning and a thick cloud covered the mountain and God begins to speak. And look at the response of the people. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. It was because of their sin that they couldn't stand to hear the voice of God. It rattled them to the core so that they begged Moses to speak on God's behalf so that they wouldn't have to hear the voice of God anymore. They were concerned that it would be the end of them. And if God had begun to boom his mighty voice before Isaiah's cleansing, then it surely would have been the end of him. But because his sin was atoned for, God is able to speak directly to Isaiah and commission him to go. Verse 8, God asks, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? We'll talk about that us in just a second. But look at the question. Who is it that will go and, and do what we require? Who will go to the people and tell them what it is they need to hear? Who will be my prophet? Of course, God knows the answer. Isaiah is the only human being in the room. But he asks the question in order to give Isaiah the opportunity to respond, which he does. Consider with me that just moments ago, this, this man had seen God's glory. He had heard the angels singing of his holiness. He declares a curse on himself, woe upon himself. He becomes to unravel, to come apart at the seams. He's losing all of his mental faculties at the sight of God's glory. And now he is not only able to hear God's voice and survive, but he's able to speak to God. He has the ability now to coherently have a conversation with the Holy of Holies, with God himself. In response to God in verse eight, here am I, send me. We don't use that phrase often or ever, here am I. We might say, here I am, 
It's telling you that, that, that I'm right here. It's a statement of location. You don't have to look for me any further. We might say, here I am, but that's not what Isaiah says. He declares, here am I, which is a response to an invitation. And God was inviting him into something. He was inviting him into his purpose and plan. A plan that was not so short-sighted as to only include the Hebrew people in Isaiah's time, but a plan that would extend past his time, through our time, and into eternity. Isaiah's response was an acceptance of that invitation. Send me, God. Send me, King. I will be the one to go. You don't have to go looking for someone else to do what it is that you're asking. I will go and do it no matter what the cost. And there was great cost involved. It was costly to be a prophet of God. Prophets were hated among the people. The phrase kill the messenger is rooted in historical accuracy. Because they couldn't kill the one who was sending the message, they would kill the one who brought it. So when Isaiah says, here am I, he is accepting an invitation, not into an easy life, but into a life of doing what it is that God wants. And now God is ready to tell Isaiah what he must do. Verse 9, he says, go and tell this people. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Now, if you're like me and you ask questions of what you read in your Bible, then perhaps the question of why comes up in your mind when you see what God tells Isaiah to do. Why would God send Isaiah with this message of hearing but never understanding, of seeing but never perceiving? Why, why would he send him to make the hearts calloused so they would not turn to God and be healed. Remember last week we looked at Jonah and God had given the commission to Jonah to go and preach to the Ninevites to, to tell them to turn and to be healed. And that's exactly what they do. This seems like a different message. Seems like a different purpose, but it's not. It just has farther reaching implications. You see, more than any other prophet, Isaiah was given a greater and a fuller picture of what was to come, what he was actually preparing the way for. Turn over with me several chapters later in Isaiah to 52 and 53. Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. All throughout Isaiah, we get glimpses. We see these small little hints or these really big hints of what was to come. We, we see these chapters in particular, 52 and 53, represent some of the most direct prophecies about this coming Messiah, written nearly a century, century before his birth, but vividly accurate. It starts in verse 13 of chapter 52. When Isaiah writes, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. He's talking about Jesus. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. In the second half of verse 15, which I had never noticed before this week, I love how this 
plan that we're in combined Isaiah chapter 6 and Isaiah 52 and 53 right together because I had never noticed this before, but it's a direct connection back to what we just looked at. After clearly talking about Jesus, Isaiah writes, for what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. See, he could have gone and told the nation to repent of their sins and turn back, and perhaps they would have for a little while. But the pattern all throughout the Old Testament reveals for us that it wouldn't have lasted, and God's people would have found themselves still separated from God. No, God was commissioning Isaiah to do something greater, something more permanent, to not tell them because eventually God was going to show them God was going to show them the cost of their sin as he lifted his own son up on that cross. He was going to show them the cost of their sin against the holiness of God. Then they would see. Then they would understand just what God had been seeking to do from the moment sin entered the world. This was Isaiah's commission. And it reached far beyond the confines of our own time and his own people. Your story and mine parallels Isaiah's in many ways. Now we get the benefit of being on this side of the cross. Isaiah saw the glory of God in the temple, but we are more blessed than Isaiah because we have the full picture being on this side of the cross. We don't just get glimpses and visions of what's to come. We have the full picture of what God did and what is possible through it. But through our encounter, every one of us who are Christians... We have come face to face with this holy, holy, holy king. We've all reckoned with our own sin in light of that holiness. We have felt the purifying work of the atoning sacrifice that has cleansed us of that sin and that has made us at one with God. We have been freed, but we've been freed for a purpose. Once you have been cleansed from your own sin, we have the same call as Isaiah to go and to tell. While Isaiah's message was specifically to his people about God, what God was going to do in their time, our message is to the world about what God has already done in our time. That the atoning sacrifice has been made, that the work has been done, that forgiveness is available, and that every single person has the opportunity to one day have a face-to-face -face encounter with the same king that Isaiah faced. Now, to be sure, every single person, regardless of belief, will one day stand before this king. But only those who have believed in his son will stand before his throne in confidence, knowing that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient to purify us from all unrighteousness. And so we, as Jesus commanded, we go. And as we go, we make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all that he has commanded us to do. And the command comes with a promise that Jesus will be with us wherever we go. It's the same Jesus about whom Isaiah spoke in his writings. He seemed to have such a clear picture or at least a clearer picture than the other prophets. Why? Because when, when Isaiah saw God in that temple, when he saw the king seated on his throne and the angels surrounding him, they weren't the only ones in the room. 
Look at what John writes in the 12th chapter of his gospel. And he references right back to what we've looked at at Isaiah 6. He quotes it. John writes, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. John points right back to this moment. But look at what he says. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory. And he spoke about him. Jesus was in the room when God commissioned Isaiah. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, was present. It's no wonder that Isaiah had such a clear picture of what was to come. He saw Jesus face to face 800 years before Jesus was born in that temple. And God showed him what was to come and what he was setting out to accomplish. I'm excited for this Wednesday at midweek as we begin a new summer series called The Messiah. And we're going to be looking at things just like this, the the prophecies about the Messiah who was to come. And it is an amazing thing to marvel at what God did through the guys like Isaiah and Ezekiel and to see what it is that they saw. But can we just marvel for a moment? at the reality that we sit now 2,000 years this side of the cross as the beneficiaries of what God showed them was going to happen? That we get to praise God for the salvation that has been made ours through the Messiah who has already come and already died and already risen from the grave? And we get to celebrate the fact that we have atonement, that we have been reconciled that we have relationship as children of God. But perhaps you don't yet have that relationship. And if you're, room, if you're in this room today, and I hate to break it to you, but you are in this room today, if you are in this room today, <laughs> then God has already revealed himself to you. He, he has shown who he is through his word. And through the preaching of his word, he has shown you what you must do to be saved. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? To respond, to believe, to repent, to be baptized, and to call him your king and your savior. Let's stand up and let's pray. Father, we marvel at your word. May we be a people who get excited about what is contained inside of it. And I'm afraid that so many of us have lost the wonder. We have forgotten the glory of what is contained within the covers of our Bibles. And we have forsaken reading what it is that you have for us to know. And being reminded of how all of this has come to be. God, fill our hearts with a desire for your word. That we would seek out what it is that you want us to know about yourself. That we would stop listening to what the world says about you and we would start reading what you have said about yourself. And we would glory in the salvation that has been ours through Jesus Christ. Thank you for guys like Isaiah who answered the call to go and tell. But Lord, help us to respond in the same way. Here we are. Here am I, God. 
send me to be your hands and your feet and your mouth to proclaim your glory to the nations. Thank you for making all this possible, for cleansing us, Lord, of our sin and for giving us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We praise you for that. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. If you need to respond, I'll be over the cross. David will be in the next steps while we'd love to talk to you.